Right now, I invite you to take a Bible to open it to Genesis chapter 29, where we are continuing in the story of the person in the Bible named Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, from whom the nation of Israel uh, comes. But that's what Dwayne will walk us through in Genesis 32. We're still in chapter 29. So Genesis chapter 29, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, this begins on page 23. Jacob had been sent away from his home and sent back to the land of his forefathers, he is actually retracing the steps of Abraham, and he's traveling on a journey of approximately 400 miles is where we left last time, and now we pick it up here, Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone and my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years." Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. 
Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. And this is where we'll cease reading. It's an interesting story. It covers quite a bit of time in a, in a short span of text, but I, the text unfolds fairly well with a series of questions that are raised throughout. So Jacob is on this long journey. He comes to a place where others are gathered, a bit of an oasis where there's a well where there are uh, sheep gathered together and the people who take care of them, and he's able to finally ask someone have you ever heard of, of someone by this name? And they say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we've heard of him. We know who he is. And then he asks the question, is it well with him? And it just gives you, again, the indication that we're, we're reading back on an ancient story, not a story of 20 years ago or 50 years ago. So as Jacob made this journey, he had specific instructions of where he was supposed to go and who he was supposed to find. But he did it with no way of having an actual expectation that who he was going to see was still alive. There was no way to communicate across hundreds of miles and to stay in touch with each other when you were spread out that far apart like we can today. So it's very possible that as he would have gathered and been in this place and asked, is it well with him, that somebody would have said, he passed away five years ago. He's not alive anymore, but I can introduce you to so-and-so. So he had to make this very, very long, distant journey unsure ultimately that he would be able to find the very, very person that he was looking for. And like we said, he's in some ways retracing the steps of his grandfather, Abraham, who was sent out on a long journey, but did not have, even in the pursuit of that journey, a guarantee of what ultimately he would find along the way. But therefore, we can then imagine after traveling for such a distance with so much uncertainty that when he hears it is well with his uncle, that he is alive, that these people know him, they can introduce him to him, that he is elated, he's excited, he is filled with joy. And in the providence of God, it just so happens that while this conversation is happening, Laban's daughter Rachel is approaching that very same place. So they can very quickly say, don't just take our word for it, like there's his daughter coming right now. And so with joy and excitement, he, he gives her a kiss. And we don't know what she initially thinks about that, but it was much more common in that culture to just kiss as a form of greeting. That's what it was. Uh, when I was um, just a couple months ago in Serbia, I was waiting for someone to pick me up at the hotel, and I thought a man was coming to get me, a, a distant cousin of mine, and this lady started walking towards me. And she got kind of close enough that I felt like, you know, I should at least acknowledge, you know, and say hello, and then she leaned in and kissed me. And I said, okay. Okay, and then I found out it was the sister of who I thought was going to pick me up, but I'd never met her before, and 
They didn't speak English, so they couldn't prepare me in any way. But it was just a form of a greeting, and it was a way of saying, yeah, you come with me. And thankfully, her son in the car spoke English, and so then we could have a conversation. And I could explain, you know, sorry if I looked offended by that. I didn't, I wasn't expecting a woman to come pick me up. But he's excited. He kisses her, and there's other stories. But there's, um, so... Here, he's excited, he's, he's, he's thrilled. One, that he just even survived the journey is a miracle out in the wilderness. That he found this place and found people who knew of this family is, again, just an act of God's kindness. And so he's, he's thrilled to be there when he asks the question, when he gets the answer to the question, is it well with him? The next question that comes to him after he's been there for about a month, so now Laban comes, Laban's heard the news, he's just excited, and so the uncle runs and kisses him and brings him to his house, and he hangs out for about a month. Now, from Laban's perspective, though, the last time he heard about the family that had left, someone had come looking to find a wife. Abraham had sent his servant and had specifically asked for Laban's sister. And as a show of good faith, that servant was sent by Abraham with camels and animals and with jewelry and evidences of Abraham's wealth. So that when that servant came and came to Laban's house and said, hey, my servant's looking for someone. Would your sister possibly be a match for my servant? He had with him evidence of where he came from. And when he said Abraham was wealthy, he proved it. He said, like this, here's, here's gold bracelets, here's, here's all kinds of, of, of trinkets that you can enjoy, that you can see, and they're gifts to you to prove to you that I am who I said I am. Laban recognizes that Jacob is. He says, you are my bone and my flesh. You're, you're a part of the family. But when Jacob shows up, he doesn't have anything to vouch for his story. He doesn't have any bracelets with him. He doesn't have any animals with him. He doesn't have anything to give. And so in that culture, what he looks like, and which is, in fact, in some ways, what he actually is, is he looks like someone on the run. He has all the appearance of a fugitive, not someone who's coming with the blessing of the family and coming to show. And we learned just a few chapters ago that Isaac had eventually amassed almost as much wealth as Abraham. And the Lord had blessed him. He succeeded in everything that he was doing. But now, as Jacob comes and he makes this long journey, he comes all by himself. He has nothing to vouch for him. And so after a month of being there, the question becomes, okay, so you are family, but you need to start working. And uh, you don't have anything with you. So what should your wages be? But get active, start working, in the field, what should your wages be? And it is Jacob himself who says and gives the time frame of seven years. He initially had met Rachel. Now he's met the whole family. He's been there for a month. And when the question comes to him, what shall your wages be? He says, let me work for you for seven years. So it's interesting. You know, there doesn't seem to be negotiation. It could have started off, you know, like, let me work for you for a year. And if he came back and said more, maybe we can find... An agreement, but no, he on his own seems to understand how things appear. And he doesn't expect to be able to win over 
the trust or the affirmation of Laban in any quick time frame. He recognizes that because he has no animals with him, no gold bracelets with him, nothing else to vouch for him, that he has to build his reputation over a long period of time. Because by definition, that's how it works. You can't build a reputation a day. You can make a first impression with someone, and then in some ways you're always compared back to that impression, but to build a reputation takes time. And so since no one else can vouch for him, no one else can sing his praises. No one else can say, yeah, he's, he's good to go. He is a hard worker. I know it looks like he ran from his home. I know it looks like he's a fugitive. But no, you can really trust him, and you can trust him to marry your daughter. Jacob, on his own, accepts that the burden of proof is on him. And it's one thing to travel 400 miles and complete a journey. It's another thing to complete the journey of building a reputation enough with someone to say, you can trust me with one of your daughters. And so in his own humility, he acknowledges that he's supposed to work for a long period of time because that's what's required. That's how God has designed it in our human relationships. We're not supposed to spend any amount of effort singing our own praises. We're supposed to live life a certain way and work hard enough in the things that we do that other people are able to sing our praises. Other people are able to testify for who we are and how hard we work. I mean, you see that all the time in, in, in public media. So for me this week, I mean, it was a great week with the Cavs winning last Sunday night and then just celebration after celebration. So I was a part of the 1.3 million people downtown um, celebrating for the parade all day on Wednesday. But it, it's, this, it's just this amazing human phenomenon. When LeBron says, I'm just a kid from Akron, the crowds go nuts. And they're like, you're the greatest basketball player we've ever seen. When in a press conference, he says, I'm the greatest player in the world. Everyone else is like, dude, you're just a kid from Akron. You're supposed to say, I'm just a kid from Akron. Everyone else, if you say that, will say, you're the greatest basketball player we've ever seen. The call and the response is supposed to work that way. When you call forth your own praises, you just, uh, okay, <laughs> yep, I mean, you are, but if you are, you're not supposed to have to say it, like, Greatness reveals itself in any environment. And you're supposed to work hard at what you're doing, be the best at what you're doing, give all your effort you have. But if you have to spend a lot of time vouching for yourself, often that reveals insecurity in a person. But then also what it reveals is, are there not a lot of other people I could talk to who would say these things? Like, we should all desire to live in such a way that if someone else who doesn't know us says, you know, can someone else vouch for you? Yeah, I mean, here's, here's my references. Not just references when you're applying for a job, but references in life. Who are the people, the other people, that could sing your praises? Jacob realizes he's in an environment where there is no one around who can sing his praises. There is no one who can vouch for him. And so he recognizes that he's supposed to work for a long period of time to build trust to build a reputation. And that's how it is supposed to be. We see uh, Rachel working hard, even though she's in a position of waiting. When she's introduced, she's introduced to us as a shepherdess. 
We don't know much about Laban's family, but we only know of the two daughters. And so she is, there's not a brother who's the shepherd who she's able to work under, but she is not yet married. She's a full-grown adult, and so she is working hard. And she is doing the best that she can with the abilities that she has, and she is doing what is often considered a man's job in a man's world. But she's working hard, doing what she can with what she is able to do, honoring the Lord, honoring her father, and working hard. And seeing that, and part of seeing that, is what makes Jacob fall in love with her. But there again, that's how it works. When we spend the time trying to exalt ourselves and trying to make ourselves important in other people's eyes, they often turn away from us. There's something about that that just repels them. When we humble ourselves, when we work hard, when we just focus on the task at hand, we leave it to other people to eventually sing our praises. And so this question, what shall your wages be? It is Jacob himself who recognizes it should be a long period of time. You can't build a reputation in six months. You can't even build it in two years. He, he knows that he has to demonstrate the ability to work over a long period of time so that Laban would say, yes, you could marry one of my daughters. Even when he gives the request, uh, Laban's response is, is, is telling. He says, uh, looking down here in verse 19, I guess it's better that I give her to you than someone else. Like, it's not very enthusiastic. It's not, yes, if you work those seven years, I mean, I'll be, I'll be a proud father-in-law to you know, hand her off to you. It's kind of this, I don't have a lot of other options right now, so yeah, let's just see how this goes, kind of a response where he doesn't seem to make a specific commitment back to Jacob, but that doesn't deter Jacob. It says he works hard. He does what's in front of him. He works for a seven-year period, and it says those days were few because of the love that he had for her. So that seven years is completed. It's now time for the wedding ceremony to be celebrated. And Laban, instead of presenting Rachel, presents Leah, and in a way that Jacob does not realize, does not know until the next morning. And so then he asks the question, why have you deceived me? I worked hard for seven years. I I demonstrated that I was willing to put the time and the effort in. I didn't ask for this in six months. I didn't ask for it in two years. I worked hard over seven years. I was specific in what I wanted. Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And that question, we imagine, if it didn't in the moment that he uttered it, would eventually over time ring in his own ears to say, yeah, deceiving someone is not a good thing, right? (laughs) You deceived your own father who loved you, who cared for you. You caused him to become angry and, and, and to, that his own body sort of revulsed in anger at what you did to him when he found out you deceived him. And here, you knew the entire time that what you were doing was deceptive. I mean, for, for Jacob to do it, it, it required a lot of effort. It required uh, someone else making the food, hair being pasted on him, all kinds of things. There was no... Um, uncertainty that what Jacob was doing to his father was deceptive. He knew it was deception. 
But again, it's one thing to know you're doing something deceptive, and then it's another thing to experience on the other end what it means to be deceived yourself. And Jacob now feels it and experiences it. And in the very same way, just like even though he deceived his father, his father did not then revoke the blessing. He, the blessing had been spoken, the covenant made, the, the, all, all of the, the rights and the privileges that go with it transferred. And so there was a point where he was able to then go back into his father's house and his father sent him on the journey. Here, Jacob fully understands that even though there was deception involved, He said the words, he made the promise, he entered into the covenant, and so he is now obligated to the terms of the covenant. He cannot use deception as then a reason to not stay married to her. And so now he has to live in the reality of being deceived. And what Laban says is, well, it's just not how we do things here. And so we have, I mean, at, at some point, at five years into this, maybe if Leah got married, then this wouldn't have happened. I don't know. We don't understand all the ins and outs of how this story unfolds, but it hits that seven-year mark. She is still not married, and so Laban feels perfectly right and appropriate in his own culture and his own authority to say, this is how we do things here. And so everything changes for him. Everything switches. Everything that he worked for, he's now confronted to realize he's gained something that he wasn't working for. And the question that comes back to him is, so if you were willing to work that hard, are you willing to work just as hard? You wanted her enough to work this many years. Does it matter to you enough to work this many more years? And the response on his part is, yes, that he is willing to continue to work. He doesn't storm off in anger and rage. He is willing to work another seven years, but now he's going to be conflicted for the rest of his life for how this unfolds. And so as we're reading this, eventually the question that would come up in our mind is, okay, so where is God in all of this? <laughs> what is God doing while all of this is unfolding? There was a dream in the last chapter But now here, we don't get a sense, there's no recording of Jacob taking a lot of time in prayer and praying, you know, should I marry this one or not? There's no recording of Laban saying, you know, should I do this to him or not? Is this, um, there's just no mention of God all the way in these first 30 verses. It's only in verse 31 where then finally he's mentioned again. And it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, the Bible tells us that God sees everything that goes on. He's, he's never caught off guard. He's never surprised in the way that Jacob was surprised. So when it makes the effort to say he saw something, it's usually indicating that he saw something with the intention of doing something about it. And, and sometimes we'll speak that way. Like, did, did so-and-so see what was going on? And what we mean is, the implication is, if they saw what was going on, they'd be doing something about it. They, they would feel an obligation in seeing what was transpiring to act. And in this story, the very first person who's identified that the eyes of the Lord are upon, though we know that the promise is with Jacob, that God had spoken to him in the previous chapter and said, I'm going to be with you with, through whatever you experience, is to Leah. That she is someone who is 
if you will, experiencing a very unique place of affliction and of suffering. All throughout the, New Test- or the Old Testament, there's a provision in the law of God for different groups of people. Two of them are for the fatherless and for widows, for those who've lost their parents and their ability to take care of them, and those who no longer have a spouse. Leah's in a profound situation in which she's almost experiencing the reality of both of those, though her father is still alive, and so is her husband. In the marriage, she is now no longer under the protection and provision of her father. But in marriage, she's also not the focus of attention of her husband. And that's something that it says when God sees that, he's moved to action. That those who are the most afflicted, that those who suffer the most in this world are those upon whom God's eyes rest with the intention to act. It's not that he doesn't care about everything else that's going on. It's not that there eventually won't be repercussions for the deception that takes place or all the work that was done. We're going to keep reading the story. It doesn't end here in chapter 29. So we'll see how all of these things go. But as this is being narrated for us, and we're listening into it and wondering, where is God? The author is saying, well, God's always there. He's always paying attention. He's not um, deceived by any of this. And when you look at someone and see them as left out or left behind or not cared for, there is something in the very heart of God that is drawn for those who suffer the most, who are excluded by others, to do in unique ways to care for them. And Leah has this sense that in each name that she gives, she acknowledges the Lord as she names her children. It just kind of flows through four kids. Any of you who have experienced pregnancy and had kids, you just wish it kind of went like that. Like it just sounds like fast and painless and easy. And it's no, it's not. We're dealing with years here that unfold. But in the entire time, she's able to acknowledge that However her husband feels about her, however her father looks at her, that does not mean that's how God thinks of her. And that that takes an act of faith on our part to realize whatever our situation, wherever we've come from, hopefully we've had mothers and fathers who've loved us and cared for us. Hopefully we're married to people who are true to their commitments and care for us. One of the mistakes we often make is just to assume that whatever those experiences are, we project those onto God. And so here we're being told, no, don't project onto Leah what is the thoughts and feelings of everyone else involved. God's love for us is not conditioned by our parents' love for us. God's care and concern for us and his looking out for us and his ability to do things for us is not conditioned upon whether our spouses are really happy with us right now or not. He is able to look at all of us individually, to know our unique challenges, our struggles, our concerns, our strengths, our weaknesses. And by his grace, he has a special measure of provision for those who are most vulnerable. That's what Jacob got in the previous chapter. When he was at his most vulnerable state, out in the wilderness with no protection, under the night sky, wild animals around, that's when he gets a dream. When God comes to him and says, I know it feels like you're alone, but I promise you, you're not alone. 
And so here in this chapter, when the most vulnerable person is Leah, God comes to her and says, I know you feel like you're unwanted, but that's not true. You are wanted. You are cared for. And that's the good news of the gospel that we get to share with people as we look at this world and it doesn't make sense to us how everything plays out and who gets what and how they get it. But that we trust that our God sees everything. He's deceived by nothing. And that he does have a special measure of grace for those who suffer the most. And I look at my own life and I just think of the amount of blessings that I've received. Decisions that I had nothing to do with of just my own history of my parents' love for each other, my grandparents' love for each other, my wife's parents' love for each other, the grandparents. I mean, I just, I just go down either side of my family tree and I feel abundantly blessed and all by things that I had nothing to do with. And so I'm perfectly comfortable on the other side of that to say, for someone whose mom and dad were not like that, I do pray and I do long for God to do something special and unique for them in ways that he'll never do for me. Because he gave me something special. I am incredibly thankful for what I got. But therefore, I pray that for someone who's experiencing a completely different reality, that he absolutely has an abundance in his storehouse to give grace and mercy for the situations that just break my heart and break the heart of anyone who's on the receiving end of them. For any person who right now feels vulnerable and not secure, who feels unloved rather than loved. And if you're sitting here today and you feel like one of those people, to hear as this story unfolds that God does love you, God does care about you, and he has available to you grace and mercy that other people should be more than willing to share with you. And sadly, they don't. But don't let the hurt that you've experienced from anyone else cause you to run from the only one who can ultimately heal your broken heart. Don't let some other person who has let you down, keep you from the only person who can never let you down. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this of the gathered Christian community. This is where we'll close. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are the God who sees and responds to the struggles 
and the brokenness that we experience in our world. We all experience it to different levels. We know that the world is not the way it should be. And so we thank you that we can come to your word and we can hear your own acknowledgement of that. To know that your own eyes and your own heart are, are moved by what you see and that you long for reconciliation, for redemption, for new beginnings to be possible for each and for every one of us. We thank you that you're the only one that can look down on a group like this and discern individually what each of us are going through, where we're at in our own understanding of you and where our hearts are and our levels of obedience, and that you're the only one who can be sufficient for every one of our needs. So, Father, for those of us who feel abundantly blessed, we we give back to you the praise that is due your name. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the abundance of your mercy. And for any here who are doubting you, who are wandering from you, that you would, in ways only you can, speak to them and let them know that they are never alone, that no situation is ever beyond your power to redeem, to bring new life from the dead. And so we sing this song now in response as a testimony of our faith in you, that you are the one who has amazing grace to heal and to restore each and every one of us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.